Courtside of the Virtual Hardwood, it's the NLSC Podcast, episode 316. Andrew with you once again, and yes, it is a little bit late for 316 day, but for those of you who are professional wrestling fans, feel free to raise a Steve Weiser and give me a hell yeah, but uh, no, we're not going to be talking about professional wrestling on this podcast. This is a basketball video game, bit of basketball podcast, and this week we're continuing our 25th anniversary of NBA Live celebrations. You may recall a few weeks ago I chatted to Rod Redekop, former lead programmer on NBA Live and also involved in the series from NBA Live 95 through 2001 in various roles on the programming side. And Rod was also kind enough to reach out to some other former members of the NBA Live development team from those classic years of NBA Live and see who else wanted to talk to us. You can check out a Q&A with Dave Warfield, a written Q&A that's on the side, of course. But we have another interview on the podcast today. Today I'm talking to Darren Schuler. Now, Darren is actually the man who is responsible for implementing DBF files, which was huge for us roster modders back in the day. Also made various other contributions to the series during his time there. He was there from NBA Live 97 through to 2001, and has some great stories to tell as well from his time at EA. So with that being said, here's the interview. So as part of our 25th anniversary of NBA Live celebrations, we've been reaching out to some former developers for NBA Live. We talked to Rod Redekop a few weeks ago, and today we have another developer to talk to. His name is Darren Schuler, and we welcome you to the NLC Podcast. Great to talk to you, Darren. Thanks, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. It's great to talk to you. Great to meet you. Always great to talk to the people who uh, whose names I saw in the games back in the day, and uh, now I get to put a, a voice to the names. Yes, and I kind of felt that way before I got into the industry too, because I looked at those games and saw those people, and then I got to meet them. So it was pretty cool. Awesome. So uh, tell us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your uh, history with uh, NBA Live and and how you came to to work on the series. Yeah, that's uh, it was kind of random actually. Uh, I was uh, I started my software engineering career sort of in the. Uh, in a weird place. I worked for an industrial scale company that weighed things and then moved from there to work for a joystick manufacturer, which maybe you'll remember the name. Uh, It was called Advanced Gravis. They made joysticks and sound cards. Does that ring a bell? (laughs) The old old game pads and everything? Gravis game pad? Yeah, the Gravis game pad and the Gravis ultrasound. And uh, anyway, I was working. (laughs) Yes, yes, it's a long way back. And all of this is a long way back. Um, so I was working at Advanced Gravis, and uh, I guess the company came into some trouble, and they needed to lay some people off. And so they were starting to lay people off, and a large group of engineers, I guess one of the people who worked there knew someone over EA. And uh, long story short is a bunch of us jumped from Gravis over to Electronic Arts, the Hitman team, kind of all at the same time. There was like two or three of us that came all over at the same time. And at that point, I did not have a background in game programming. Uh, I had been primarily just industrial sort of, uh, you know, equipment programming. And then uh, I always wanted to get into game programming. Gravis was the closest thing I could uh, make happen at the time. So uh, this was a a great 
opportunity for me to finally get into doing games like I always wanted to do. That's really cool. It's it's funny how people uh, are led to games, uh, game design. We've had a couple of people uh, in the forum over the years and in our community uh, just playing the games and getting in touch with EA or more recently uh, 2K Visual Concepts and and kind of being uh, poached, I guess. And some, some of the people have programming experience, others are just very passionate about basketball games and and yeah it's it sort of all, all roads lead to game design if you if, if that's your passion i guess yes and uh i guess in our case we weren't really poached we were more or less um kind of offered a lifeline if you will <laughs> <laughs> and and it worked out well for a few of us uh and the reason it's kind of random and kind of odd is because i i don't know if i should admit this but i'm going to um i never liked basketball Ooh, controversial. <laughs> yes, yes. And, of course, I didn't tell anyone at the time because you don't want to be going over to a new job working on a basketball game saying that I don't like basketball and know nothing about it. So <laughs> I'm sure this is probably news to Rod Redekop. Maybe not. <laughs> After all these years, I'm sure he's probably figured that out. <laughs> well, I remember talking to Rod. Of course, we talked to him back on episode 310, if my memory serves me correctly. And, uh, yes, and yet, and... I listened to it. It was great. It was great to hear Rod's voice, and oh, uh, and he was. Uh, I have to say, he was one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And actually, that whole team—that was one of the things that struck me the most when I went from Gravis over to EA. Was all of a sudden I went from a group of smart people to a group of really smart people, and Rod was the lead programmer, and he was an extremely smart person and <laughs> very intimidating in that way. But he's also a nice guy, so I'm glad that we've stayed friends over the years. Absolutely. It was great to uh, to chat to him and get that insight into into the development. And, and mentioning, I mean, he mentioned on that show that uh, developing the game and programming it, not necessarily, I guess you didn't need that background in or a love of basketball. It was, at the end of the day, uh, code. Yes, yes. And that's... Um... You know, it's it's funny. This is probably a good segue uh, because uh, that exact reason, that exact sort of um, serendipity of events is what uh, made the whole DBF file thing transpire. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is you know, one of the reasons that, uh, that Rod put me in touch with you because he meant he, he knew how much I loved doing the rosters back in the day. And uh, Tim Turner, of course, who was one of our founders, went on to work for EA uh, worked on Live 2001 with Rod, and, and he he was one of the pioneers with the roster editing and roster patching and the roster modding in the uh, in our community. So when we had the DBFs, uh, all of a sudden we didn't have to edit the exe files in a roster dat file, and it was it was so much easier. So so thank you very much for that. <laughs> well, there is a funny story about how that all came about, and uh, <laughs> it's you know I I I hesitate to tell this story simply because I'm afraid that I might burst someone's bubble maybe namely yours <laughs> okay uh because i think a lot of people think you know we all sat down as a team one day and thought okay we're going to get together and think about features for the player and what are we going to do what can we do to you know to really uh make this game you know shine for the players what are the features that we think they want uh and you know we had a big discussion about it and talked about it in detail and and all of these things and a lot of people would like to think that that's how it happened but that is not at all how it <laughs> happened. <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, uh, my first software engineering gig right out of school was working for an industrial uh, scale company and we weighed things 
uh, trucks, large things. And just the nature of that work, there was a lot of data. Like we, we wrote applications where trucks would get weighed in and weighed out, and you'd have to put all that information in the database and sift through it and, you know, uh, do various things with it. So <clears throat> fast forward to the time when I leave Gravis and end up at EA by a wonderful serendipitous event because I had always wanted to do games. So I get there, and one of the first things that just kind of stood out uh, to me was, remember, I don't know anything about basketball, so I'm having to look. I, I worked primarily on the UI, on the user interface and the front end, and so I don't know anything about basketball, and I'm seeing this large file, which is it's a, a C++ source code file with all of these names of players in it and all of these uh, pieces of data, and it was a very deep structure. So there's player names and stats and abilities, and you're very, very familiar with this, I know. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and there's tons of data in there, and it just struck me when I got there, I'm looking at this file, and it's huge. You know, it's thousands of lines long uh, of code. And I, I remember just asking someone about it one day, saying, so where does this come from? Uh, and the story was that, you know, the producers, they have a Excel spreadsheet, I think at the time, and they would take this Excel spreadsheet and export it into a CSV. And then someone somewhere, maybe it was Rod, I don't know, uh, wrote a tool that would take that CSV file and generate this C++ source file. And that source file would then get compiled and you know, sort of bound into the image. So, uh, the the technical details of that, the the net result is that you end up with this binary blob. Again, I'm I know that you're very familiar with this. You end up with this big chunk of binary data that's embedded in the game, and it's obviously not very easy to edit. But honestly, that's not what I was thinking about at the time. Really, the whole DBF thing came about because I looked at that and thought, well, that's a real pain. For the uh, you know for the production team to have to you know like basically every time you wanted to change like if you're a developer for example and you're sitting there at your desk and you're trying to play the game and this particular player has a you know he's shooting too well or he's not shooting well enough and so now you've got to go in and you've got to manually tweak you first you got to find the player in this huge file and then you've got to you know modify his stats and then rebuild the game and recompile so. Long story short is I just saw this as a huge waste of time and thought, you know, I'm coming from this industrial background. We use these DBF files a lot because I used a there was a programming language back then that I used a lot called Clipper that we used at this industrial scale company. So I just kind of put it out there and said, you know, hey, uh, why don't we use this? And it was a uh, there was a library that we could kind of build into the game or link into the game that would read and write these dbf files and you know one of the things is a long time ago obviously but one of the things that i do remember is the idea did not go well (laughs) no not at all i i think it's just because it was you know it was something that they're remember that you know these are game programmers these are smart guys these guys are used to doing things very specific way for games and and it's very Games are all about performance and and memory usage, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so it was a tough road. I had to I had to sell it. <laughs> I really had to sell it. And I think you know Rod. I I remember Rod was pretty 
pretty on the fence and I had to convince him and then I had to convince the, uh, the, uh, sort of the lead lead programmer that was Amory Wong. I had to convince him, I think. And I, I just remember having to make the rounds and do a sales pitch and say, Hey, you know, if we did this, you know, we would have this benefit. And I, again, I, I'm ashamed to say this and I'm ashamed to admit this, but it was never really, it was never really, the, the conversation was never about, Hey, you know, my sales pitch was never, hey, this is the, our players would love this. They would, they would go crazy for this. No, I, I, I'm sorry. It was never like that. It was always, hey, our producers could get so much more work done because they could just edit the file directly, edit the, day, uh, the DBF file and just, you know, post a version of the DBF file. And we just pull it down and, and drop it on your, uh, on your system and use it in the game. It would make things so easy. And in hindsight... I have to say, I, I can't even believe that I didn't even think <laughs> about the ramifications, the positive ramifications for the community. I, it just blows me away that I, we didn't even think about that in the conversations. It, it may have come up very briefly, but I don't remember it ever being sort of significant in the conversation. It was always about, you know, what does this give us? You know, what benefits does this bring the team, the development team? How does it save us time? You know, because there's a lot of technical details, too. Like this library, you know, it it was a third-party library. We had to license it, which means we had to pay for it. And then we had to, um, you know, we had to worry about memory usage because the games back then, we would do uh, cross-platform development. So that was basically, you want to write the code once as much as possible such that it'll work on PC and PlayStation and, you know, Xbox and whatever else. And so, you know, there was a lot of technical concerns there. And believe me, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody, you know, for being leery about it. Um, so really it, it's, you know, it went through a certain amount of due diligence, but um, I think one of the things that kind of sold it, if I remember correctly, again, remembering that this is a long time ago, it's 20, 20 some years ago, uh, I think one of the things that sold it was inside the game, uh, if you remember, there's we had stat screens where uh, you could sort through stats and had use different sorts and, yep, and yep. filters and things like that. Well, I can tell you that writing the code to uh, deal with sorting and filtering those, you know, that raw file was... You know, not fun. It wasn't hard necessarily, but it, it was just you know there's there's time involved in writing that code, and if the producers wanted to sort by this other field that we don't have a sort routine for, we'd have to go and write a new sort routine and you know things like that. Once the DBF files were in, all of a sudden in the code, you call one one instruction, one line of code that says sort by these fields in this order, and bang, you're done, and it's you know it's rendered on the screen. I think that is kind of what pushed it over the edge for a lot of the engineers. And then we did some testing and, and got it in. And, and then I think it took, it didn't take very long before a lot, you know, pretty much everyone was like, Oh, I get it. You know, but again, (laughs) they got it as per, you know, the benefits for the internal team. And I don't (laughs) think everyone, anyone anticipated the effect it, it would have outside the game, you know, uh, after it was released. You know, I, I'm not disappointed at all to hear that. It, if anything, that just makes it, it's so much of a better story that it's, you know, you bring up uh, serendipity and, and it really is, you know, that you, you put in this system that makes it easier to develop, which I always figured was, was the way. I mean, um, I, I've done a little bit of programming. 
uh, back in high school. I, I took a, f- a few courses we were doing in high school, and uh, it's. I think I've said it to Rod on, on the show as well. I think a lot of people think it's uh, just typing in very basic English commands into Notepad and, and saving it as an exe file, and it's it's so much more than that. So, uh, it, yes, but it, but it's awesome that something you, that you did for for your benefit, for the benefit of the team, and it's great that you sold it that way. Um, actually, it did turn out to be so important and so crucial to modding because we were able to just open those files with uh, DB Commander. Uh, mm-hmm. Tim and Lutz uh, and Brian, they made um, a module for with using Access, for MS Access, that uh, they mapped all the values and, and just were able to get people to... You know, to ch- to be able to edit it just like they've been doing doing for the exe files in previous games, so it, it made it a lot easier. And so even to this day, right up to the, the very last PC release, Amiga Live 08, uh, continue to use the DBF files. So, I mean, right there, you uh, instituted something that basically was so important to the PC version uh, for as long as as EA was doing the PC version. Right, and it's it's crazy to just really kind of see the effect that that had for such a small sort of, you know. Uh, <clears throat> at the time, innocuous thing, because really we were just trying to make our jobs easier and make things easier for the production team. But, you know, it's those little things that, you know, sometimes, in, in this case, is one of those times, they, they end up being a lot more than what you expected they were going to be. No, d- oh, definitely. And it's, again, your your background in other uh, programming comes in handy. And it's, I, I, you know, I wonder if in the industry these days, whether that kind of cross uh, cross genre i suppose uh, programming has to come in handy i suppose yeah i think i think it does uh i think it did more back then because uh the hardware was a lot more limited but even today that's definitely one of the things in you know in software engineering and engineering in general is uh if you start to limit your approach and limit your thought thought process to only doing things a certain way uh, you end up limiting your innovations. So it's always good that, you know, uh, at EA and, and other places that I've worked, you know, you get different people with different perspectives. And one of the things that I always, you know, uh, said to myself and to colleagues was that I, I would never, ever uh, say that I'm an expert on anything. Uh, I was a generalist and I knew enough to get by. And I always looked up to people like Rod and, and, you know, Andrew Jinks and uh, so many other people, David Bolo and, and a lot of the other engineers, because I personally felt like my skills were so far below theirs because I came from outside the game industry. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was able to contribute, you know, just as well as they did, but just in different areas. So it, it felt really good to be sort of able to do that without you know, having the same background or at least the number of years of experience they did. Did you become, did you actually become a fan of basketball at all through playing the game or, <laughs> or doing it? Or was it always more just a, the more, more just code to you, more, more of a, a project rather than uh, something that kind of influenced uh, a passion? I do have to say that for the longest time, the basketball part of it, like the AI, the rules, you know, that the, because I spent most, of my time, the majority of my time on the UI on the front end, I never really actually had to touch the, you know, any of the code or even had to worry about the, you know, how the game play actually worked, at least initially in the first year or two that I was with EA. And so I spent a lot of time on UI and didn't really have to think about it. But I did start to 
just through osmosis, you can't work on a project like this of this scale because these are large projects. That's another thing I don't think people really understand. There is a lot of people that go into making a, a game like NBA Live. And, you know, there's a gargantuan amount of effort that goes in. So you can't possibly go through something like that without absorbing a certain amount of knowledge and you know, understanding things like basketball, for instance, in my case. So as the years progressed, I did actually start to like basketball. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say that I had the same love that you do, but I, I did start to like it. And unfortunately, and sadly to say, it's for all the wrong reasons, namely because because EA had a deal with the NBA EA had very, very nice box seats at uh, the arena in Vancouver, so they would sometimes dole those seats out, and so we could go to watch the games and get all the really high-end food and the drinks that go along with the box. Uh, so, yeah, that once I got to do that a few times, I started to like basketball. <laughs> no, I've heard a lot of people who, who haven't been into a certain sport have, have gotten... Uh corporate tickets and so suddenly become fans and you know what I, I certainly wouldn't turn down those tickets either for uh, for a live experience like that but no that that's cool you know and like you say i suppose you you, you work on that project um it, it's hard to ignore the basketball part of it after a little while right yes so with um with with the dvf files see i, I was going to ask a bunch of questions about um uh, certain fields that i that i'd never been able to figure out and and i'm guessing that maybe 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 it's been too long. Maybe it's uh, too basketball oriented uh, to to know. But um, I, w- I was going to ask if you remember what certain fields did. But uh, that might be that might be uh, too much. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I would probably not know any of that. And probably put it this way: you could have called me while I was in the middle of making the game right. and asked me those <laughs> questions, and I probably would not be able to answer those questions then. Because, like I said. It was a lot of it was a black box, uh, and really the DBF thing was just a solution to a problem that you know would help uh, help the team. So the data itself was somewhat irrelevant, you know, to the solution. Uh, but yeah, no, I I would not know anything about all of the ratings. Now I would assume that people like Dave Warfield or uh, Will Moselle or you know people like that they they would definitely be able to tell you the answer to that question. See, uh, I should hit up Dave again, actually, because I asked him about a couple of the unknown values in the in the previous game that when it was in the XE file that we found, and um, yeah, he's uh, it was too long ago. It was a uh, it was a shot in the dark. But I thought, you know, my own curiosity, I, I have to uh, have to ask, um, that, you know, these these questions just to see if I can even just asking them is honestly uh, <laughs> satisfies me to, to a certain extent. Uh, with with the uh, the user interface is is a, obviously a, a big deal. I mean that is how we interact with the game. Um, I, I remember there was an issue. Uh, I'm not sh- probably haven't heard about it, but with uh, when when 2K14, 2K now, when that when they uh, jumped to the next generation, PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, they, they, that uh, the next gen version of, of 2K14 had a, had a very serious issue with the uh, with the interface, and not only was uh, not only was it not particularly uh appealing <laughs> visually appealing but it actually there was a problem in the way it was programmed uh to the fa- to the point where it only allowed five save slots which was not really sufficient of that for a game released in in 2013 uh, doing that kind of uh that kind of programming and being able to uh 
have the, as many save slots and things like that. Is that the kind of thing that you worked on in making it all work as far as, you know, with, with the save system and everything like that? And uh, did you encounter any difficulties uh, uh, in, to that regard? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have to say, like, do you, uh, not to, you know, not to trash talk or, or put down any of the gameplay guys because those guys were all geniuses, but I have to say that a lot of times the UI programming, I think, was 10 times harder than, uh, you know, the other parts of the game for a plethora of reasons. Uh, like, just things like, um, let me see. Uh, I think it was NBA Live 98 uh, when we had the user interface kind of had these lines that would draw in. Uh, they would kind of animate. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Like tr- gold-colored trails that would kind of animate in on every screen transition. And, oh, my gosh, those things were so so much of a pain to deal with because, you know, you would have to, like, the every UI screen has to be kind of designed and laid out so that all the text fits, you know, uh, and it sits in the right place. And then, and then you have to deal with these lines that animate in and you have to deal with all of the uh, conditions like, okay, what happens if you transition out of the screen before the lines are rendered, uh, Mm. finished drawing and, and vice versa and things like that. So, uh, you know, just little things like that, that someone like you, you know, looking at the game would think, Oh, that's kind of nice. It's a nice little feature. They draw the lines, but (laughs) It's an enormous difference between looking at it on the screen and what's required to make it all work. Um, another thing... What, what's, that, on the, what's on the screen for five seconds of animation took you hours and hours, is what I'm hearing. Exactly, yes. In many, many ways. The uh, I, There's another feature I did that I can talk about in a minute that exactly fulfills that description. Uh, but uh, So things like the lines drawing, and then another thing that uh, people sort of may not realize and was always a huge source of frustration for us on the UI side was localization. Mm. So localization is, uh, again, we, we try to write code once, right? So we don't want to write code five times for five different languages. You know, we, we want to write code once for all the platforms and, and use uh, string databases, which I think eventually we started using databases for the string tables as well, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, so we would have these tables of strings that are all of the localized versions of the text. And something that I think a lot of people don't realize is like, you know, in English, you, let's say you've got a screen, uh, a UI screen, and it's got some uh, text header that says score in English. But in German, you know, that can be score dupen flurgen schlinken something or other, and it's 47 characters long. And so now you've got a whole new UI screen that needs to be effectively put together. And, you know, it's, it's the same UI screen, but the layout is completely different, or you have to make adjustments to the layout based on, you know, the lengths of certain words. And then, you know, you've got these lines to deal with. So it was always just so so painful <laughs> i i do remember that for sure <laughs> I, I can only imagine that I, I don't have a lot of uh, f- don't have many foreign versions of the game uh, i know know some of the early games like live 96 uh, it's 97 etc shipped with uh, that you could switch the, the the language within when you installed it, at least on pc uh, i did a little while ago got a lot last year actually got uh, the japanese version of nba live 2002 for ps2 
because it's got Michael Jordan in a Wizards cover, uh, Wizards jersey on the cover. Uh, so it was, <laughs> it's kind of a rare collectible, especially since the uh, US version and the Australian version, for that matter, had uh, Steve Francis. So it was kind of weird there. But anyway, you know, they didn't go with MJ for the, the global one. But anyway, uh, so I, I picked it up as a collectible off, off eBay. And uh, it only works on an emulator. I can't use it in my PAL uh, PS2, of course. But it was just cool to put it in there and see see the menus. And they're, they're actually half in English and half in Japanese. So just imagine, yep. yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a ton of work that goes into that. And actually, um, one of the, I just remembered actually, one of the other things that I worked on. So I worked primarily on building UI screens and then did the DBF file thing. But another thing after, so I did the DBF file thing. And I guess maybe it's just my, I don't know how I approached the work, but. When I did the DBF thing, I, the way that all started was, oh, this is a problem. Here's a way to solve it. Uh, same thing happened with the UI because I'm doing all these UI screens and I'm fighting with having to move. An artist comes over and says, hey, can you move this over three pixels? And so you go into the code and change a five to a two, mm. you know, and, and then rebuild and recompile. And so I ended up building uh, what we call the layout system. Uh, for the UI control so that while the game was running, you could kind of use a certain sequence of keys and your mouse and you could click on a UI component and kind of move it around and position it. And then when you were done, hit a key on the keyboard and then it actually writes out the file to say, okay, here's where everything belongs. And then you could toggle that for each language and say, okay, in this language, this field is over here. And then in this other language, this field is over there. And and that actually uh, worked pretty well for a while. And then I think... If I remember correctly, I think what happened is EA's internal tools team uh, started building their own layout tool very similar to that. And uh, so then after they had theirs you know, working, we kind of ditched ours and started using theirs. Although, you know, truth be told, I preferred mine over theirs. Uh, but no, how you know. it works. Yeah, it's, it's yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But we eventually started using theirs and, and uh, uh, you know, it made things a lot easier for sure. It's it's just always very interesting to hear about what goes into into game design. Again, it's a lot of people don't really understand uh, some of those the minutia, all the nuance that goes into you know knowing programming code for a start, but but also then to be able to just switch things around once you start putting everything together, and it, that it's uh, uh, not not just a case of deleting something or changing something. I mean, I, I guess sometimes, as you, as you mentioned, changing values to move the positioning of certain uh, things with to. Uh, satisfy the art department but it's uh it always seems very simple on our end uh when, when, all, when all we have to do is mod a uh, a completed game uh, and I, I will say that there were probably times especially when i had a slower pc back in the day that i, I turned the animations off uh, of the, <laughs> the lines of, of uh, live 98 but uh but having heard the story behind it i will never disable that setting again because i will appreciate that drawing on the screen every <laughs> single time <laughs> well i will tell you something that hopefully will make you not feel too bad uh here's a secret and the other devs will probably kill me for saying this, but we turned it off too during <laughs> development because it was too slow and we would have to iterate on screens. And so one of the first things we would do is just turn that off <laughs> unless we were debugging that and making sure that it you know, was doing what it's supposed to do. But when you're having to iterate on screen after screen and make sure that it's showing the right thing, yeah, that was the first thing that got turned off. <laughs> <laughs> got to speed up that testing process, obviously, yeah. <laughs> so- Yep. So, so what is it like working with the the art department? Uh, you, you know, you mentioned they come come at you with, uh, "Can we move this over two, three pixels?" Uh, was that a frustrating experience, or was that just part of the job? 
Uh, I think it started out actually as a frustrating experience just for the reasons I mentioned, like, you know, the, the art department's doing their job, you know, they come over and say, you know, Hey, this thing's got to shift over a few pixels and, and we get frustrated because we're in the middle of fixing bug or whatever. And, and, you know, the last thing I want to do is go and move something over on the screen, three pixels, because something like that to us is completely, you know, asinine, like who cares? It's only three pixels, but to them it's important. And so, you know, we'd always have to remember that it's important. And so that's why a lot of the layout tool stuff came out because, you know, yes, this is important. And so we need to make it, you know, easier uh, for us to, uh, you know, to do what it is that they want us to do. So, you know, we were always, um, it was challenging to work with the art, not the artists, uh, but, you know, with the art itself, just for technical reasons. But, you know, we always tried to make sure we gave them, you know, everything they needed as, as much as we could. Uh, of course, they were, they were the worst pranksters. That's, that's <laughs> the one thing I remember. Uh, I have many stories about the art team uh, that I can tell, particularly pranks involving myself. <laughs> but other than that, yes, they were great to work with. It was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. I mean, if it's not going to get you into trouble, you know, I can give you a platform to uh, to tell you great stories about pranks. I I have no trouble hearing about those. Well, the I think the one prank that stands out more than anything, and this, I apologize because this is a long story, but it it does. I think it it it's pretty it's pretty wild. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, so our our lead, I think she was our lead front end artist. Her name was Cindy Green. Uh, I believe Cindy, yes, Cindy Green, I think was her name. Another name that I I recognize, yep. Yes, uh, I guess um, this was in Canada. We were in Vancouver, and I guess at some point she had gone out to see one of those male burlesque shows uh, where, you know, like a Chippendales type thing, and she had one of their (laughs) pictures on the outside of her cube, of her cubicle, and I came in one day, and she had Photoshopped my face onto his body, and... (laughs) swapped out the photo on the outside of her cubicle and we would always have our bug triage meetings outside of her cubicle i and i was really new to the company so i was kind of like the prank target for a lot of people which was okay you know i get it so we're standing there triaging bugs and i see this picture and i just stopped in mid-sentence and said what the and everyone just fell on the floor laughing so you know that was a good prank but the thing is it it got a life of its own. Somehow, one of the engineers took that picture, digitized it, scanned it, and they put it into the game <laughs> as a uh, as a cheat. So, in that first year, I think it was Live ninety seven. I think I remember Rod. Uh, I listened to Rod's podcast, uh, and he mentioned this Easter egg they had, where you hammer on the escape button one hundred and twenty times, and then it uh, brings up a funny message. Well. One of the programmers, and I think I can blame Andrew Jinks for this, he changed that Easter egg to, after 120 keys, it would show this picture with my face on this uh, half-naked male stripper's body. And <laughs> it actually, he, he did it just as a joke, and he was going to like show it to me, but it made its way into QA. Oh, okay. And so <laughs> QA, we have a large QA department, we've probably got, I don't know, 100, 150 people in QA down there testing all various different games, probably maybe 20 people QAing the NBA game. And within four hours of that 
making its way accidentally, I might add, into the build that we sent down to QA, we had a bug written up that said, you know, after you hit the escape key 120 times, uh, an inappropriate picture shows up, and the person tried to be funny and said, we think the picture should be larger, because it was a girl who wrote up the, who wrote up the uh, bug, <laughs> right. and she said, I think the picture should be much larger. So here's the really funny thing, is that this thing grabbed a life of its own, and every year after that, the dev team, unbeknownst to me, I would never be involved in this because I just wanted it to die. They would take this picture and they would embed it in the game in some creative way. So the next year after that, I think it was uh, the year that we had the Jumbotron. We added the Jumbotron in the 3D arena. Oh, yes. And 99, yep. Every, yeah, after some random period of time, this picture of me would show up on the Jumbotron <laughs> with hearts, hearts floating around it. And... <laughs> I, this is all crazy. I, believe, I am not making this up. It got to the point where our QA department head started offering a bounty for the first person in QA to find this bug that used this picture. And so every time we sent a build down there, QA would be frantically trying to find this picture in the game. Because they would actually win money. I think it was fifty bucks if they got if the, whoever found the bug first got fifty bucks. And of course, every single time this happened, it was all I you know I'm the butt of this joke every single time. Yeah. The following year, I think it was uh, I think it was one year they replaced the center court image with it uh, at a random point, and then finally it culminated I think in two thousand and one where uh, just randomly it would show this image uh, in behind the user interface uh, in the game, it would just kind of fade in and fade out. I think it was 2001 and it had that very white light colored uh, UI and it yep. would just kind of fade in in the background. Uh, this picture of me would fade in and then fade out. And the funniest part of that story is that because we were working with the NBA um, one year, uh, uh, I think his name was David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA. Yep. Yep. Uh, David Stern, I think his name was. Um, this is the non-basketball guy, remember. <laughs> uh, he was in town, and he was paying a visit to the studio because, you know, he's the chairman of the NBA, and, you know, it's kind of a, a meet and greet, and he came down to meet the team and kind of see an early build of the game. Well, this this picture showed up while Mr. Stern was looking at the game, and luckily it was subtle enough that the picture kind of came and went, and our executive producer at the time who's demoing the game kind of said, uh, yeah, that's just a bug. Because Mr. Stern was like, uh, what was that? <laughs> and he just said, oh, it's just a bug. You know, we're, we're working on removing it. And so, you know, everything, everything went fine after that. <laughs> but I think after that, then it was like, okay, we've got a, we've, enough with this. <laughs> and they, and they think they put the kibosh on it. But <laughs> anyway, so that's the story of one of the worst pranks that I think the the art department pulled at my expense, but honestly, it's one of my one of my favorite memories too. So, uh, I don't I don't mind. <laughs> I, guess, I guess we all have to laugh at ourselves at the end of the day. <laughs> too. Yes, but, um, indeed. Uh, you know the, the the effort that goes into to doing that because you've got to take your time out of your day to to program that. So, I mean, that's I suppose you've got to admire the effort and the creativity, if nothing else. Yes. Well, the the re I think the main reason for is that. A, a, a lot of people don't understand is that these games take a gargantuan amount of work. And so we would work uh, un, 
enormous amount of hours, like 18 hours a day, seven days a week for months at a time uh, with no breaks. I, I remember having to ask my development director if I could take a Sunday off so I could do laundry because I had no clean clothes. Hmm. And, you know, he was kind of like, well, okay, if you have to, you know, so that's the kind of environment you're working in. If you have to, so, <laughs> if you yeah, have to if not you smell. Have to <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, when you're working in that kind of really high pressure environment, it, uh, you know, obviously there's bonds that form. So, you know, these, these people become really good friends, but you're also spending a lot of time together and you just need, you need to have some way to release. So, you know, we had all sorts of fun wild and crazy things that that we would do and it's just because there's so much work going on and and so much stress and so much pressure you've got to have a way to sort of release the stress and have a little bit of fun while you do it i mean you, you heard the the uh, interview with rod you probably recall the uh the story he told about uh playing golf with the uh, spare discs yes i remember that and uh there's many a piece of uh, busted CD that I think is still stuck in the carpet at EA <laughs> Canada. I'm pretty sure. It's, uh, I actually visited EA Canada for a couple of community events. I, uh, but, uh, I was wearing shoes, so I guess maybe I didn't notice it, but uh, <laughs> should have looked out for that. That's good. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's good. Another thing I remember, too, is uh, you know those CDs. Yes, this is back when we had to use CDs. Uh, the way it would work is the development team would you know, we'd be working till 2 a.m. and there would be a cutoff. If we had to do a build, we had scheduled builds one a week, let's say. And if the build was scheduled to start at 10 p.m., uh, you know, all of us programmers, we had to have all our stuff checked in to source control, you know, so that it could be pulled down and built by our uh, our engineer who was in charge of builds. Uh, his name was Brian Chan, and he had a uh, he had one of those revolving red police lights on top of his cubicle and whenever it was time to do the burn he would turn on this red revolving light and he would play the song burn baby burn disco inferno at, <laughs> uh, as loud as he could on his computer which you know was basically telling us all right everybody you better have your stuff in because the build's happening now and you know those are the types of things i remember along with the people too of course because you know these are some of the smartest people i've ever worked with but it's stuff like that that makes it tolerable to be spending you know the large lion's share of your life at this game studio making games it's you know it things like that that just make it a little bit easier it doesn't sound like things have changed that much in the gaming industry that they're still talking about that crunch and it's you know in the past couple of years there's been a lot of uh controversy I, I guess a lot of people have covered it people like jim sterling uh, have covered that uh, that very harsh crunch and that the, the pressure that developers are under and the the threat of job loss and, and it certainly doesn't sound it like a dream job and yet at the same time when you talk tell stories like that it, it seems like it can be for all the pressures uh, a very fun job or at least maybe back in the day yes it was definitely <clears throat> it's definitely a great job if you you know if, if you're young and you single and you don't have, you know, a wife and kids at home. If you have a wife and kids at home, it's it's tough. It's mm. got to be tough because, you know, you're literally the my day would be, you know, wake up at nine, get to work by ten, and then work until three a.m. and do that seven days a week for months on end. And you know that takes a it takes a toll. But you know when you're twenty something and you're making games. You know, like for me, the best 
the thing that the one event that made it all worth it for me was I was in uh, an electronic store like Best Buy or something. I can't remember what the name of the store was, but I was standing there looking at the game shelf and there was my game on the shelf. And, you know, this 12 year old kid comes along and grabs this game and says, oh, my God, I can't wait to play this. I'm so excited. I love this game. And I was like, yeah, that makes it all worth it right there. I, you know, I, I'm I'm in. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, that uh, you know, the fruits of your labor, I suppose. Yes, indeed. So as, as I asked Rod as, about this as well, but as far as uh, collaboration with other uh, teams and departments with EA, uh, would you work with them as far as uh, doing things? I mean, you mentioned getting that uh, that tool that uh, helped out with the with the UI. Was that common to get uh, other assets and things like that? Yeah, it was actually because the way EA structured things, uh, at least initially when I got there, uh, things were a lot more sort of closely held. So in the first couple of years that I that I worked on on the game, you know, we had a lot of our own technology that we kind of held on to ourselves and just implemented our own stuff. And and, you know, but we had this tools and libraries group that we called it and they would, you know, EA was trying to sort of push this model of, okay. You know, let's have a dedicated team of engineers who are doing the hard, complicated, time-consuming things, building these libraries that are reusable amongst games to try and distribute that labor and, and allow us development teams to focus more on the, you know, the actual game-specific stuff that, you know, is really, you know, you can't, you can't replicate that across games, obviously. Otherwise, we'd have, you know, Porsches and Lamborghinis driving around on a yeah. basketball court. So, you know, they, they started to push for this centralized tools and libraries group. And so as time went on, we saw more and more of the things like rendering and, and AI and sound, uh, you know, things like that turning into libraries that we would just kind of pull in and use uh, in our games. I worked on the... Um, on the PC product primarily pretty much exclusively. And, um, you know, so we, uh, you know, over time we started to use a lot more of the technology from other groups and, and it wasn't just the tools and libraries group. For example, if the NHL team, uh, I think it's been a long time, but I think the NHL team did a really awesome, or maybe it was a FIFA team. They did a really awesome animation system. And so they kind of brought that in or, gave that over to the tools and libraries group and they polished it up. And then we ended up, you know, being able to use their animation systems. So, you know, things did flow backwards and between teams, uh, on the technical side and even on the, you know, even on the non-technical side, actually, uh, there was, um, like, for example, I did voiceover work for need for speed and, you know, we had, um, a couple engineers, you know, from, uh, or sorry, artists uh, from other teams like Need for Speed and FIFA do, you know, uh, art for NBA at various different points for various different reasons. So it was it was pretty collaborative. But ultimately, you know, the, because the games are so specific to their function and their functionality, you know, these libraries that we would get from the tools and libraries team, you know, eventually they ended up that we would they would fulfill kind of 80% of our requirements and then we would still have to, you know, add another 20% of what our needs were. And then, you know, just to fulfill the requirements of our specific game. And I'm pretty sure we weren't alone in that. Awesome. I, I, I'm glad you brought up uh, need for speed actually, because I, I did see your credits on, uh, on Moby games, 
uh, a little while ago when I was um, you know brought that up just to make sure I was um, uh, researching, you know, <laughs> doing my due diligence and everything. <laughs> uh, I, I did notice that you'd uh, have special, special thanks in uh, Need for Speed Three, Hot Pursuit, and uh, and vocal uh, voice credit in both Hot Pursuit and High Stakes. Um, I haven't played Hot Pursuit in, ooh, in in many years. I, I dust off a lot of basketball games all the time because of uh, my Wayback Wednesday features, but it's been a while since I dusted uh, Need for Speed Three off. Uh, so what did you do in that one? What was your uh, what was your voice sound? What does what does what, what what uh, voice actor amount, amount to in that one? <laughs> Pull over. Oh, in okay. pursuit of a red Ferrari. I was the cop. I was one of the cops. And then oh. Serena, uh, Serena Witters, I think was her last name. She um, she was one of the female cops, and that that's one of the things that was pretty cool. Like you know. Uh, I guess the Need for Speed team needed someone to do voiceover work and, you know, they needed it done quickly. And so they, you know, they just went around and were looking for people with appropriate voices. I had done, you know, I I was a DJ, so I had done, you know, I kind of knew how to control my voice or whatever. So, you know, they're, they're like, oh, that's good enough for us. Okay. So there I am. I'm stuck in a sound booth for two days reading a script that's four inches thick and repeating the same stuff over and over again. But, you know, it, for me, it was fun and it helped the company, you know, it helped us or it helped the need for speed team get their stuff done. And so, yeah, it was really cool to be able to help other teams like that. And, um, you know, it, it's, you know, something really cool to, say i was a part of but obviously a very very small part of <laughs> the so not not something you're pursuing you're not you're not going to be the uh the next i don't know billy west or great voiceover actors next mel blank i don't know maybe i should start hosting the nba live podcast i don't know, well, you know <laughs> no gives, gives me a no, break i don't think so if, 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 yeah hey, i don't think if, i if you're willing to edit it as well then uh... <laughs> <laughs> no no my basketball knowledge is not not sufficient i'm afraid <laughs> it's it's funny that we saw stuff like that back in the day of, of uh you know of old video games developers pitching in and adding voices as well i guess it happens you know, people little cameos from creators and even pixar dreamworks things as well but these days it's it's all about bringing in the big names or bringing in the the players for for the my career stories in 2k and, and mo-capping them and getting all the voice acting as well and uh it's it's one of those neat things about those old games that that the uh, the voices sometimes sometimes of course they would get big names I know Lands of Law CD ROM version back in the day just to mention another old old game that I don't think I've mentioned before uh, had Patrick Stewart in it so they would get big names but but obviously people like yourself if they're in the studio just if you can grab somebody who who can uh, who can deliver a line well and has a great voice it's uh, it's like well we've got someone on hand it's uh, it's easier than bringing in a big name I guess. Yeah, and uh, actually, now that you bring that up, I, I'm now remembering one of the one of the really cool things I remember working on NBA was when um, you're going to have to help me because I don't remember what year it was, but we were able to get Rozelle. Uh He's an amazing beatboxer and rapper. Oh, 2000. Uh, 2000. Yep. Yeah, glad 2000. He was amazing, and uh, he came into the studio and and was recording his stuff. But he was also a huge NBA Live fan, so he actually wanted to see where the game was made and so he came around and was you know hanging with us in in the development pit you know where all of our cubicles were he was a really cool guy and and extremely talented i i he just blew me away and that was really cool but oddly enough i don't think you know now that i think back i'm sure 
I'm forgetting. Uh, so someone else will probably call me out for this, but I don't ever remember meeting any NBA players, <laughs> to be honest. I, I remember meeting Rozelle, huh. uh, but I don't remember meeting any NBA players now that I think about it. Now, granted, I'm the guy who doesn't know anything about basketball, so meeting an NBA player was probably a little less uh, impressive to me than perhaps meeting Rozelle, because, you know, Rozelle was way cool. But um, uh, it took a trip to New York for the uh, NBA All-Star Game uh, in 1999 for me to actually meet a, uh, um, an NBA player. Uh, and I was able to actually do that on e, uh, EA's dime. So yeah, the guy that didn't like basketball got to go to the NBA all-star game in New York in 1999. That was an awesome memory. <laughs> so, a, lot, a lot of people, a lot of people seating right now, I'm sure, but that's, yeah. Um, yeah, I know. But, um, Razel and the NBA Live Orchestra is the the credited for uh, "Shaking the Floor." Uh, actually, one of the best songs. I think a lot of people, you know, music is very nostalgic in, in general, obviously. But in within gaming and within basketball games, you know, as it relates to our community, you you mention these songs from old games, and, and these days it's it's often licensed music, and that, and that started it with two thousand. So it's I guess you brought in Razel, and that really uh, kickstarted that because before that it was all uh, original compositions. And, uh, and they're right. great as great as well. I love those Jazzy old soundtracks as well. And it's but it's it's one of those things that when you fire up the game and you, you hear the music and of course you see what you worked on the the UI and you and, and the artists uh, collaborating on that. It's uh, it's very nostalgic to see that and it brings back all the memories even before you even hit the court, hit the virtual hardwood and, and start playing the game. You uh, you get that that rush of nostalgia just by seeing you know what comes up as you start the game. Yes, you know that was one of my one of the things I look forward to every year with every game that we did was what Traz uh, Traz Damji and his team would do for the intro videos and the music because just like you said, it was phenomenal at just kind of creating that that sort of experience like oh my gosh, this is an NBA Live game. This is amazing. You know, it, it really kind of sets the tone. Yes, it set the atmosphere. And, you know, it, 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 that was always one of my favorite things. When they were do, release the first cut of what the video is going to be, I was always one of the first people to, you know, want to get my hands on it because that really excited me. And I don't know why. I guess maybe because I'm, you know, maybe because I'm not a basketball guy. I, I don't know. <laughs> So these these players look pretty cool, Bo Outlaw and all other players that would be in there, and obscure or, or famous was always. And it was always cool to see, and it's it's something that that we don't see anymore. And, and even after they for a while they went to uh, in-game footage and, and making it once the players started looking good enough that you could that you could do that. And it's it's something that not even Two K does anymore. They don't have that that real long intro video, and I, I suppose it's because a lot of people skip it. But for for people like myself. It's it is a big part of nostalgia for basketball gaming that seeing that that uh, intro video and hearing the music and everything and seeing what was put together and setting the atmosphere, it's it's something that's missing from from some of the recent games and it's uh, it's a shame and it's it's cool to hear that even in the studio that you would see it and it would kind of fire you up in a way too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I just remember there was also cheerleaders in the video as well, so that didn't hurt. <laughs> no. So, no. Um, so but I always loved those videos; they were amazing. I recall, of course, Rod's uh, great story about putting in the the picture, the, the, the Easter egg for the the QA people. When if you if you quit out in NBA Live '98 multiple times, it would show different pictures of uh, 
um, cheerleaders and and finding the uh, finding the one finding the message you know you stop it you'll go blind if you kept doing it. it didn't make the final game unfortunately but uh, he, he, as you said as you probably may recall from that uh, that interview uh, QA found that very quickly yeah yeah and then they changed that message and turned it into my picture so yeah oh great that, yeah so that's... yeah <laughs> that was they just reused the code uh i have to you'll have to you'll have to give andrew jinks a hard time about that one because all he did was reuse the code for that and put my picture in instead <laughs> you know i've been i've been looking for uh i've been looking for images to do a 25th anniversary court patch for live 08 live 2005 208 so I'll, obviously i'll need to get my hands on that image to uh put that there center court you know oh heaven help me no <laughs> <laughs> let's hope not <laughs> i know that i was uh like uh one of the things that i uh, spent a lot of time on too was uh the multiplayer stuff at some point uh rod uh rod was doing all the multiplayer stuff and rod was just so busy doing other stuff i ended up taking over the multiplayer stuff at at some point and uh, it became frustrating because a lot of times the cheats that people would add would break multiplayer. <laughs> of course, yeah. F- funny that you mentioned cheats. Uh, in NBA Live 99, not, not sure if you remember, but the modem play was actually disabled by default. It wasn't available. You had to type in I love lag to unlock it. <laughs> yeah, I, I vaguely remember that, yeah. I think that was the last year that I think Rod... I can't remember if Rod worked on it that year or I did, or maybe we both did. I'm not sure. But Just, yeah, that was, that was, uh, it's, it's funny, you know, you think back to doing this stuff and for me, that was amazing. Like I, I know today, you know, that kind of thing is ubiquitous playing multiplayer games. It's like, yeah, whatever. But back then doing this over a modem, that was some amazing stuff. And I was just, amazed at the fact that it worked in the first place especially considering you know how the whole thing worked because it it was really kind of a miracle that it would all work uh you know just because of how it actually you know the whole mechanism of how the multiplayer worked and uh you know it just kind of blew me away <laughs> so it, it, i'm also again reading off off movie games here so i don't know how accurate it is uh were you also working on you, you mentioned online the the ea.com uh, online system that was installed alongside Live 2000, I think, and Live 2001. Was that also something that you worked on a little bit? Um, yes, sort of after I left the NBA team, I worked on that. But also before I left, uh, another feature in NBA Live that no one saw, this is what I alluded to earlier, a feature that you know <clears throat> had a boatload of work and a lot of money spent on it and nobody really seemed to care, <laughs> uh, was, I think it was Live 99. I'm going to need your help again. Mm-hmm. I think it was Live 99. We had the Jumbotron, and we had live score feeds from the NBA that would scroll across the bottom of the, um, the Jumbotron. Yep, 99, yep. 99, yep. And that particular feature, I was in charge of that feature, implemented that feature. That feature required me going to New York to meet with the NBA to discuss data formats for getting scores, et cetera, et cetera. And thus I was able to attend the all-star game in that year. And, uh, you know, a whole lot of effort that went into that. And I think most people turned it off. <laughs> yeah. 
I think by the time I got the PC version, because uh, I was playing on the Nintendo 64, because I hadn't, uh, our home PC wasn't uh, wasn't good enough to play 99 PC at the time, and then we upgraded, I actually went back and finished my collection, and by the time I got to play 99, the season was over, so I, didn't, I had to turn the scores off because we weren't getting any. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was a cool feature. You know, I, I thought it was pretty cool. I thought players would love it because, you know, while you're playing, you know, uh, virtual NBA basketball, you could be seeing scores from real live NBA basketball. It seemed seemed like a great feature on paper. And uh, I just don't know that um, you would know better than I if it was uh, well-received or not. <laughs> I think it's one of those things that was ahead of its time that... Uh... Yeah. The, the, these days, because always online is a thing, we're just used to always being connected to the internet while we play games. Uh, I think these days people would appreciate it a lot more. Uh, I remember around about 2006 when EA got the the deal with ESPN. That's when they were started doing ESPN integration. They were doing the mini podcasts that would come through and highlights were being shown and, and the score ticker. So it did take off, I think, once we started getting broadband and once that became uh, ubiquitous. Right. So yep. it's, it's, probably, it's probably more that and, and you know, it's... Where things have changed, you know what, what how old somebody is playing a game, and, and I'm 35, turning 36 later this year, and and you can tell from that generational gap, like who who grew up with gaming offline and who who's been growing up, you know, the younger generation where online gaming is king. You know, you can really tell that uh, that divide. Yep, yep, you can. And then even worse, if you're someone like me who remembers gaming over a modem, then mm. that really tells you how old we are. <laughs> The, the old IP to IP play when that was a thing when you'd yeah yep the, uh, the the trust of sharing your IP address with another person that's uh it, it was a simpler time it was a an innocent time yes or when you were using a modem you would have to give your phone number to another person so oh. you would have to dial them oh Duke Nukem 3D yes played played many sessions with a friend on that yeah that was and then someone would call and knock you off the modem it was uh, knock you off the exactly. call it was uh, these, these things that these these young whippersnappers don't understand about gaming these days. That's right. Indeed. With um, going back to the the user interface, do you have a, a a favorite one, both in aesthetics and uh, I guess what you did behind the scenes with the code? Well, I know this is going to sound sort of duplicitous, given that I was just saying how horribly difficult it was to deal with. But I think actually my favorite one was the the one with the lines although i i do have a soft yeah i do have a soft spot in my heart for the the 97 with the it had the paper sort of textured look to it that was pretty cool um but it has it it that ui had its own set of frustrations related to it just simply because the nature of that ui nothing was square you know nothing was there was no sharp corners like with the at least with 98 with the lines, you know, they're, they're straight and, you know, drawing straight lines is easy, but dealing with, you know, there was a lot more art, uh, with 97 because everything was sort of artistically drawn to have that texture. And so I, I really, I really kind of have a soft spot for 97, I guess, just because it was my first game and it was the first NBA live for me. And I remember that vividly and uh, remember being so excited and honored to be a member of the team. And, and it was just, I mean, I could not have been happier at that time. And so... Yeah, 90, 97 is fantastic. It is, it is one of my favorites to this day. I uh, love the game, love the, 
the whole aesthetic, the whole uh, interface you've got there. As, as you said, it's got that graffiti style. It's very artistic. Uh, it's it's pure '90s cheese. I love it. Uh, there's not a capital in sight in that whole. <laughs> you can't find a whole, you can't find a capital in any of the text. Um, actually, when you when you create a player, you have to create them with. Uh, if you put in a capital, the capital will show up. It's the only time a capital will show in the in the player screens or anything. So you got to be <laughs> careful about that. Um, ah, yes. And, and and just yeah, as you as you said, like nothing is really straight. There's everything's on the on the angle. The the pictures whenever whenever you click on an option, bringing up a random picture every time and clicking it multiple times, trying to get the right setting and your favorite picture. It was these are the things we did back in the day before we had. Uh, internet i suppose (laughs) yeah right and just the you know from a technical perspective you got to understand that you know computers like your you know your screen is is an array is a matrix of pixels so you know doing things straight and aligning them you know uh horizontally or vertically is easy but when you start dealing with things that are not you know perfect that are not straight that are not clean that's when things start to get you know more complicated and and so it's not to say that you know you can't deal with it it's just it's extra there's extra thought that has to go into it and you know you have to deal with a lot more than you would if things were a lot more you know angular i guess is the only way i can describe it Mm. yeah but it it turned out it turned out well It, it you did it that's really cool. Yeah, I, I also do really do love uh, ninety nine as well. As you, as you noted, the the jumbotron, the the flyover through the the panning across the stadium, are very uh, very memorable as well. Uh, Two thousand, of course, had the the first year you had the legends in the game, so you have fire up the game and it's got the the, the model of Michael Jordan on the nineties All Stars in the background, and then just the players morphing and fading into one another. That was a really cool effect as yep. well. Yep, that was really cool. Is that is that something you worked on as well, or? Um, I worked on that user interface. I don't. I don't think I had anything to do with the 3D modeling. We had. I think that was um, either Dom Humphrey or David Bolo who worked on the uh, 3D rendering for those models. Because really, there's two components in that user interface, right? So there's the 2D component, what we call a 2D component, which is you know. It's not a 3D model. It's it's orthographically projected on the screen, so it's it's the square and angular stuff. And then there's the 3D component, which is rendered, you know, through a perspective camera in behind the UI, and that would be the players and and so the rendering guys who are way way smarter than me, they were the guys who would deal with you know the the rendering of the players in the background and stuff like that. And again, you know, it's not like you can just sort of say, okay, here's this rendering code that we have in the game and just plop that in the, in the user interface. No, it's a different renderer. They have to make certain um, concessions and they have to make certain changes that, that, you know, allow the performance requirements, you know, to be satisfied such that the UI is snappy and fast and responsive. So, you know, again, just like I said, a gargantuan amount of work and things that you would think would be easy that you already have in the box, like rendering a 3D player. Uh-uh, no, it's not that simple. You have to have a special renderer for that to render it in the UI in that particular context with this particular set of effects, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, nothing is ever easy in game development. <laughs> no, no. Now, obviously, you had those cameos during development in the form of a uh, flattering or embarrassing picture, depending on how you want to look at it, I suppose. <laughs> um, did you ever 
you were one of the people that appeared as a as a playable character because a lot of the developers <laughs> were uh, unlockable went in, through creator player yeah and that's where i got nailed again <laughs> uh good friend of mine david bolo we lost touch i uh, really need to talk to him again uh david bolo uh, genius this guy was uh, just a spectacular human being spectacular genius he uh he, i looked up to him and he was probably i don't know 10 years younger than me um he we were very good friends and i think it was in live 99 or live 2000 he created an Easter egg, and I think this Easter egg may have made it in that if you create a player and give it my name, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big guy. I'm like six foot two, and I have size 15 feet. And so if you create a player with my name, the, the character in the game had these huge clown feet that were like three <laughs> feet long. And, and the player, when he would run down the court, these feet would flop <laughs> like big clown feet. And it was really, really funny. <laughs> and I don't know if it actually, I can't remember if that Easter egg made it into the real game or not. But uh, I know that when I saw it the first time, I laughed <laughs> my, I laughed my face off. It was really cool. <laughs> I'll have to uh, I'll have to do some research, you know, purely for scientific purposes and <laughs> historical purposes, yes. of course. But uh, yes, of course, yes, uh, yes. It, it it was always funny to see those codes. It's it's something you don't see anymore, actually. In uh, those, uh, not as much. You see some developer cameos here and there in uh, fictional tweets in in the career modes of games these days, but you don't really see those uh, developer teams anymore. They kind of went out of vogue in about around twenty twelve, twenty thirteen was the last time we really saw them. In two uh, K was still doing them. But uh, yes, it was funny punching in those those names and seeing them back in the day. Uh, in Live ninety eight, Rod is his nickname is uh, Leerless Feeder, a pun on Fearless Leader. So <laughs> you see little things like that as well. So. Yes, I remember that. I do remember that vaguely. Yeah, um, I think pretty much most of the most of the development team had characters in the game, and it's just most of the development team's characters. They were just you know we had the textures. I remember. I'm thinking back. I, I do remember that we had like a photo cap day when the entire dev team went in to have their picture taken specifically to be, uh, you know, to have their face texture taken so that it could be put into the game as an Easter egg. So I think pretty much most of the most of the development team had their face put in, and then you know we had we were able to select our own stats <laughs> and you know that kind of thing and. And I think just because I was the non-basketball guy, I think all my stats were like as low as you could possibly go. <laughs> <laughs> I have to double check that as well. It's I, I, had, I have noticed that a lot of the developers have given themselves quite uh, quite quite generous ratings if you, if you look back at them. Uh, so, someone I, I forget who has a uh, a nickname. I tore my ACL. That's kind of depressing. But um, yeah, there's there's lots of little fun stuff with that, which which again you don't see these days, and it's uh, it's kind of a shame. But I guess they're using their uh, limited amount of space really yeah i mean on the consoles for sure you know on a pc game well you got lots and lots mm. of space lots and lots of memory lots and lots of disk space but on a console you know things things are a lot different and you have to be very careful and judicious and that kind of thing but honestly i think really easter eggs easter eggs started to become an issue just because um it was it was starting to become an actual liability uh, in certain instances where 
programmers put in Easter eggs that were not known or not approved, and then they were some of them were offensive, and then you know it became a PR nightmare. And so I think that's probably why that whole practice sort of died out, which is really sad and unfortunate. Rod did mention that that it's kind of. Uh... Yeah, the, the the NBA is not always happy about certain certain things that uh, yeah that are in there. Just uh, looking, I've I've brought up the uh, the DBF file actually appropriately enough for Live ninety eight where I've uh, unlocked the developer team. Uh, you are in there with the nickname Bigfoot, so I guess that's uh, that's yes. where it is. <laughs> yes, that's that's my nickname. Yep. And what are my stats? Are they really bad or really good? Let's see. So take a a quick look here. I'm assuming they're probably pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're well, actually some of them are quite. Uh, yeah, they're actually are quite uh, decent. Some of them. So uh, yeah. Okay. You can ball. You can ball in uh, on the virtual All right. Yep. It, Excellent. Uh, All right. Uh, so I'm just looking at some of these others that may bring back memories. Of course, uh, Rod is is Leela's feeder. Um, Amori Wong, Iceman. Um, Andrew, ah, yes, Iceman. Andrew, Andrew Jinx, uh, hurt me. One word. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, the funny, that just made me remember, too, a lot of these nicknames. One of the things that we would do, uh, remember how I mentioned earlier, we would have these burns, the, the CD burns that would happen late at night. And basically, once that light goes on, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like in Top Chef when they say, okay, time's up. You know, yep. your hands are off the keyboard and you can't really do anything, but you have to hang around just in case there's bugs to fix. So what would we do? Well, we would fire up Doom or Quake. And we would have these huge quake battles. <laughs> and now I'm remembering a lot of these names <laughs> were people that would kill me in quake repeatedly. <laughs> so, yes, I'm remembering hurt me because hurt me hurt me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> We've got uh, Bryski, Brian Chan. Yeah, he hurt me a lot, too. They were both really good players. Andrew Jenks was an amazing uh, quake and doom player. I remember that uh, being killed by hurt me a lot. I think there were actually some some photos of things like this and some of the, the uh, behind the scenes shenanigans in the, in the credits of live 2000 to come up some, uh, some photos from behind the scenes in the, in the studios there. So that's uh, if people want to go back and, and look that up. Uh, we've got also got, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, David Bolo, uh, Candyman. Ah, yes. <laughs> Candyman. <laughs> uh, I don't think he played Quake. So, or if he did, he wasn't very good. So <laughs> and, uh, Dom Humphrey, uh, the Borg. Ah, yes, the Borg. Dom Humphrey. Dom Humphrey was an extraordinary human being. Was, is. I I don't want it to sound like he's dead or anything, but (laughs) he is (laughs) an extraordinary human being. That guy was a genius times 10. So his name, the Borg, uh, was so fitting for him because he he had a brain of a thousand people and one of the smartest, if not the smartest individual I have ever met in my entire career. So the Borg was a good name for him. And uh, we've also got Clambo, Ken Lamb. Yeah, I remember I remember Ken, yeah. So, yeah, so definitely some some uh, creative nicknames that's in the, the live 98, 98 one. So, uh, yeah, you've got you've got you got a face in the game. I'm going to have to fire that up now and that'll that'll be the uh, the promotional image, I'm sure. Um. <laughs> Hopefully the big feet are there. I'll, I'll check that out and, and see if they uh, if if that is part of the because uh, that's uh, that's funny if they've left that in because obviously maybe not something that the <laughs> that they would check. Actually, I, I have noticed um, again, and this is me being very geeky as a modder with uh, with the NBA Live databases that 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 uh, that data doesn't actually go in until you enter the code 
to unlock the team, then it injects it into the uh, the database. I, I did notice that. Right. Yeah, that was probably done for make the uh, NBA, make the NBA happy. <laughs> yeah, probably because I think that what we did eventually was the DBF file had to get approved. So at, so early on, the production team would take that CSV file, that Excel file, and ship it off to the to the NBA for approval. But I think. I think after a while, once we started using the DBF files, they would just send the DBF file. And I think the dev team would kind of be a separate DBF file and that would get merged later or something. Mm-hmm. Because, the, you know, obviously the, we don't want to bother the NBA with having to, you know, look at, uh, you know, look at our stats during <laughs> or look at our records during the development of the game. Who's the They board? do have to approve it. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, there's exactly. Some, some, some uh, someone just there trying to, uh, Iceman, we we don't, have, we don't have George Gerben in the game. What are we? We don't have, we don't have well, but that. the the NBA did have to approve those things, though. So you know, I think what would happen is we would send them a list near the end of the game when we're kind of wrapping things up and say, okay, here's our dev team list, and then they would sort of approve that list. But you know, just during the course of the game, when the when the production team's making changes to the rosters and and updating ratings and things like that, uh, they probably just didn't want to pollute that data with you know dev data because you know obviously the nba players were way more important makes sense makes sense <laughs> would you say then that nba live 97 being your first game is is a sentimental favorite or what would be your your favorite game that you uh, that you worked on um overall i i think i have to agree with you i think nba live 97 is my sentimental favorite just because it was my first game and you have to understand like since i was 11 years old i i decided i wanted to make video games and i it took me a while to get there but but i knew when i was 11 years old that this is what i wanted to do so nba live 97 was this kid's first you know opportunity to realize his dream of making games and so you know for that reason alone that's why that game holds a special place in my heart and i actually remember a lot of the stuff about that game more than other games because you know it it meant a little bit more to me and there was more pranks pulled on that game i think than any in the future so <laughs> you're the new guy right so that's <laughs> yes yes i was the new guy so i got a lot of pranks pulled on me and and that's actually one of my favorite things to remember. So, yeah, that's my favorite, Live 97. Seems to me that there really needed to be some kind of series made at the time. Some, some I mean, if, if YouTube was a thing at the time, just what you could have done, you know, with the behind-the-scenes stuff of, uh, of, you know, some kind of version of EA version of The Office, perhaps. Yeah, actually, that would probably have been, uh, for our team at least, it probably would have been funny because, I mean... We don't have enough time for me to describe some of the crazy stuff that that went on. You know, just I can tell story after story of various different things that were just odd, quirky, weird. Like Alan Johansson had a a stack of empty soda cans in his office that was the size of a small Volkswagen. <laughs> it was crazy. You know, just things like that. It's uh, it, it really does sound like a fun time to uh, to to be working on the games, and those were classic games. I mean. Sometimes people forget that Live was the brand leader for for so many years. I mean, 2K has come into the space and and done things while Live has had its struggles in the last couple of generations. But during the time you worked on it, Live was Live was king. Right, and I think that the reason is well, there is no the reason, but one of or some of the reasons are, you know, that 
our gameplay was, <clears throat> I think, unique in a lot of ways. And I think more importantly, just the the heart and the dedication of the development team that, you know, there was a lot of people that, you know, just lived, breathed, ate, and slept this game. And I was one of them. Maybe not the basketball components, but this game, wanting to make a really outstanding product. And when you get that many people with that mindset together, you know, it magic happens. And, you know, I can say, you know, I don't think that magic happened on all of the games, like all of the versions of NBA Live, but, you know, there are some versions or some years of NBA Live where I felt the magic, and Live 97 was definitely one of those years, and I think Live 99, I definitely felt the magic there too. So it's, it's, I know it sounds superfluous and kind of frilly, but I, I really can't describe it any other way. It's, it's cool to hear as well from my perspective because growing up playing those games, and I touched on this in my retrospectives that, I, that I've been doing, the written retrospectives for NBA Live, going back and playing them all and commenting on them and uh, ret- retrospectively reviewing them, that every year that there was a, a, some very impressive improvements year to year from, from about the time you started, 97 through 2001. Uh, just the new things would be added every year that we got the, the 3D faces and, and then you'd have the three-point shootout and then multi-season mode and that turned into the whole franchise mode. And, and just the way... It, Every year there seemed to be this big new thing and the graphics were getting better and everything. Obviously it was a time that uh, technology was just speeding along in the, in the mid to late 90s as well. But it was really cool to see that and, and feel that magic from our end as well as, as gamers. So it, it really was a special time, I think, for the series. And, and clearly it was a lot of dedicated and, as you say, smart people uh, working on the series and, and making that magic happen. Right. And it wasn't just the developers either, of course. You know, we had a production team, you know, our producers, they eat, slept and breathed this stuff. And, you know, they they were the ones that, you know, they would kind of pitch ideas to us a lot of times, you know, say, hey, we want to do this and or do that. And, you know, they, you know, they were the ones who drove a lot of the, you know, feature development in the game and and but a lot of times too, developers would just say, "Hey, what if we did this? And what if we did that?" And that was one of the other cool things too, is that it wasn't just a okay, you know, us engineers are a talent pool that gets used to implement whatever the producers want. You know, some games are like that, but this game was not like that. We, you know, we actually had input, and we could say, you know, "Hey, what if we did this instead?" And our production team was was pretty uh, accommodating with a lot of things. Obviously, you know, if we were asking for stupid stuff, they would say no. But <laughs> we we would at least have the opportunity to voice our voice our input, and uh, uh, it felt really good. Now, granted, most of the input that ever came from me was usually greeted with a "No, that's stupid," because you know I'm not the basketball guy. <laughs> but everyone else, everyone else, their input was always welcomed. <laughs> So did you actually grow up watching any other sports at all or No. Uh I I hate to say it, but uh, I am a computer nerd through and through. Bought my first computer when I was 11 years old and decided right then and there I wanted to make video games and that was the trajectory that my life took and sports unless it was you know something to do with the computer i wasn't interested and so that was basically it so yeah i'm afraid i'm just a classic hardcore nerd with absolutely no 
interest in sports whatsoever. It's embarrassing to say, and it's hard to it's hard to put out there now. But yeah, that's yeah, that's me. Still, still contributed to these great basketball games. So I mean, it's you know, is is that a prerequisite? Apparently not. So I was just wondering though what uh, what suggestions you would have made. Like I was thinking, if you grew up watching American football, for example, is oh, can we make the ball a little bit more of an oval? No. No, Darren. It's uh, this is it's it's got to be a basketball, you know. It's yes, yes, right. I do it. That that reminds me. I think I remember uh, Rod. Rod was always very uh, meticulous about uh, a lot of things in the game, and I remember him spending a lot of time trying to make the the uh, the little ribs on the ball mm. look three D and and look very uh, very realistic and things like that. He was always you know, really fixated on, on the small details and things like that. But, um, no, there's, there's a lot of things that I, you know, I thought would make good features, uh, but they were always things like related to the UI or, you know, the DBF files for the roster. So I guess I can, you know, I can claim that one. Yeah, I'd (laughs) I'd absolutely take credit for, uh, for the DBFs, what what it's meant for our community. I'm sure they, uh, there'll be a, Generous round of applause from all the uh, old old heads who <laughs> worked on the NBA Excellent. Live back in the day. Uh, Live 2001 was your your last uh, game in the series, and uh, touched on this with Rod as well. That was that was a year that uh, everything was pretty much rewritten, and it was uh, I believe a changeover to a, a slightly different programming language that year. Was it? Oh well, that may be true. I don't remember. Uh, I think we were using C uh, or we were using C actually. I think maybe for C an assembly language for a lot of the game, and then it's possible that 2001 was our first foray into C++. Maybe that's what he was talking about. I think that's what what Rod mentioned, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, that always involves, you know, a bunch of work. And, um, and, you know, C++ is more kind of structured language than, than C was, and, you know, you're able to use classes, and so it made, it made a lot of things easier, but it also... I, if I remember correctly, it was you know there was a an adjustment curve uh, for at least for myself for sure, um, and I'm sure others as well. So I remember we were all uh, taking courses on you know how to write the best C++ code, and uh, I think Rod and I actually went to a class together. <laughs> we went to a, a C++ sort of refresher course uh, at a local university uh, just to kind of you know, brush up on our C++ skills to make sure that we were uh, up to snuff in that regard. But anyway, yes, I, I do vaguely remember that in 2001 we did a, a big rewrite. And again, it's one of those things we just take for granted as gamers, just, oh, why is this different? Why is this, you know, not quite what it was before? Well, we've kind of rewrote the whole engine, the whole thing from scratch. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. 2001 is kind of a milestone release because there are some things that... Uh, uh, 2000 was uh, such a great game. A lot of people still cite that as their favorite game in the series. Uh, 2001 still, uh, for my money, a great title. But uh, yeah, certainly there was obviously some teething problems there as trying to do this, and, and within a year as well. It's, it's a it's a tremendous and, and to this day because 2K is still doing it every year uh, live when they have come out every year they've done it as well. It's it's not a lot of time to have to rewrite a lot of stuff and uh, and develop a, a new game. Or most gaming most games taking years to do and and the sports games come out every single year it's uh it, it is a, a tremendous grind yeah no that that's one thing for sure we were always on a very fixed timeline you know our our game had to come out before uh i remember it being you know 
your game has to come out by Thanksgiving or or else. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, because it needs to be on the shelf for Thanksgiving because that's the big, you know, big Christmas shopping time. And, and so we were always on this fixed schedule. And, you know, <clears throat> it was always a struggle because, you know, we didn't just necessarily stand there in a room one day and say, hey, why don't we rewrite everything in C++? Mm. Yeah, okay, sure. Why no, not? there's, you know, why not? <laughs> no, it's not, you know, it's not really that kind of a cavalier approach. It's a lot of times we're doing that because like we're thinking ahead, you know, we're thinking about, okay, we want to do this feature and that feature, you know, in this iteration or maybe the next iteration. And, you know, so, and maybe those features are major additions, you know, major uh, changes or whatever. And so a lot of times we're like, okay, well, you know, we have to plan ahead for these features and plan ahead for these technology improvements. And so, you know, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you want to spend the time necessary to prepare the platform, you know, the, this this development platform, this this engine platform that you're running on. You want to prepare it for, you know, the features that are coming up either that year or the next. But then there's always this this deadline, you know, and so you know, they are, they're always wanting to get more features into the current iteration. And so there's always this battle between, okay, you know, we've, we've got to spend the time sort of laying the groundwork for this year and future years, but we also have to get the, all the features in for this year. So that was always a battle and it was always, you know, uh, difficult. And it, I think in the end, it ended up, you know, adding a lot of effort and time to our development timelines that, you know, maybe didn't need to be there, but uh, nonetheless, that's what happened. <laughs> and uh, and so many times it came out uh, the, the the end product uh, made it worth it, I suppose, because again those those early live games really set the standard for for the five on five sim games. So yeah, I mean it's, it's it sounds like I'm kissing ass, uh, but honestly, you know, thank you and Rod and everyone else for for making those games because it's uh, it, all, all that time you put in. I, I think do think uh, you know it, it it turned out so well. Yeah, and it's it's good to hear that because uh, I and all of those very talented people spent a lot of their lives. You know, I, I think a lot of people don't understand the the grind that is involved. I love making games, and I had to get out of the industry because I couldn't take it anymore. I just could not take the hours and the grind. So, you know, uh, like I said earlier, you know, the, seeing that twelve year old kid pick my game off the shelf kind of made it you know kind of made it worth it at the time but as time goes on that grind gets to the point where you just can't do it anymore and you have a wife you have kids you know you it it just becomes you know not worth it anymore I guess in a way I wouldn't say not worth it but it just becomes too much to handle and you know you have to get out priorities change I guess Yes, your priorities change, and then it becomes, you know, certain things become more important. You know, when you're 21, uh, being able to tell all your friends that you make video games, you're like a god. <laughs> you know, when yeah. you're 41, uh, your friends look at you and say, when are you going to get a real job, you know? Right, so, right. And that, now it's a multi-billion dollar industry, so it's as... Right. as but but the grind is still there. It's it's really cool to hear about the the collaborative effort as well. Just to back up to that and, and making suggestions as as programmers as well and coders. Uh, our uh, our good friend of the show because he's a former NLC staff member and original podcaster has actually uh, Leftos and shout out to Leftos if you're listening. He uh, now works for Visual Concepts. He's one of the 
driving forces behind their franchise mode, my league and my GM, etc. And he's he's a coder, he's, he's a programmer, but also he has been able to suggest ideas and has had many great ideas that he brought to the table uh, for that mode. And that's the kind of freedom they have there. I, I'm not sure what the situation is with EA these days, but he, he mentioned that was one of the things that really appeals to him about that job when we've talked to him on the show before, that he's he, not just writing code, that he has that input. And, and clearly it's worked out for the 2K series. And, and also I would say for, to that end, you know, being that collaborative effort, it obviously had a great effect on those early NBA Live games as well, that it was everybody pitching in with ideas and, and you being there and pe- people were in the trenches writing the code know exactly what they can do with, with that code. And it's it, it clearly is a, is a very important process that it's that it is such a team effort. Right. And it was never, you know, it, it wasn't just the people that, you know, at least for my experience, you know, it wasn't just the people that, you know, were basketball experts, because obviously there's a lot of developers that were basketball experts. But, you know, I was able to make my contributions not being a basketball expert, not knowing anything about basketball. I was still able to make contributions that, you know, contributed to the game in the in the form of the DBF files and the UI layout stuff and, and you know, multiplayer play and stuff like that. So it's it's... It's really nice to be able to say, you know, yeah, I contributed too. Even though I'm not a basketball fanatic, I was able to contribute and actually do at least something that, you know, the the true basketball uh, aficionados appreciate. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. No question. So uh, I mentioned that you moved on after Live 2001. Uh, j- just needed a change in uh, in what you were doing? Well, <clears throat> for me personally, I was actually really enjoying working on the uh, – uh, internet, the multiplayer. Uh, I was really enjoying that type of work and really wanted to get into multiplayer games doing more online stuff. So I asked uh, my development director if I could you know, do more online stuff. And within 48 hours, I had plane tickets to a, our studio in San Diego uh, to go there for a job interview. And now that I look back on it, I wonder if maybe they just wanted to get rid of me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, within two days, I had tickets to go to San Diego, met with the team there. That team was taking NBA Live. And and I think this was maybe a little ahead of its time, too. But what we were doing there was taking the NBA Live game and creating embedded browser games. So essentially taking the the full 3D game and kind of modifying that code base to work inside of a web browser and at the time today that's not nearly as hard as it was back then (laughs) back then it was a whole different sort of ball game but uh anyway so i ended up moving to san diego to work on that uh you know that initiative it never really went anywhere because ea shuttered the studio before uh before it had a chance to go anywhere but um yeah, unfortunately, a common story with with the industry, and, and it's kind of it sounds like a dream job in so many respects. And I've said this to develop to developers before. It, it sounds like this dream job, and whether you love basketball, or simply just love the coding, or, or both, and, and have passion for games, but it's also very mercurial from, uh, from from the outside looking in. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I mean, I, yeah, all of the all of this babbling that I've been doing about how awesome it was. You know, I hate to sound sort of contrarian and contradictory, but honestly, when, you know, I get approached by, I'm not in the game industry anymore, by the way, but when I do get approached by, you know, younger people that know I was in the game industry and, and I hear, you know, they, they ask me and say, you know, hey, I want to get into the game industry and how do I do that? And can you 
you know, it's always the same. It's, can you get me in, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the, my response is always think hard, uh, and think again, because it's a, I don't want to say a thankless job because it's not thankless. Obviously there's that 12 year old boy who's pulling that game off your shelf and he's going to thank you. But, you know, I got laid off, I think three times by EA and, uh, you know, at different studios. Cause I went to, I went to EA San Diego, got laid off there, went to, uh, EA Westwood and, uh, in Las Vegas and worked on, uh, earth and beyond got laid off there. And then went to uh, Pogo, uh, EA's online gaming studio in Austin, Texas. Got laid off there. So, you know, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. So when I have those conversations with young people who want to get into the, you know, get into the industry, I say, you know, uh, think hard about w- wanting to do that. And here's what you can expect. And then, you know, they can make their own, they can make their own call. But it's a tough, tough life. When you're young, I guess it's okay but it's it's tough no 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 doubt about it and of course these days you've also got that 12 year old on social media uh yelling slurs at you because they don't like something about the game (laughs) yeah yeah luckily back then at least the social media thing was not uh not really born yet and uh so we would get i think you know we would get feedback through forums you know and and uh blogs and things like that um but uh, yeah, it's not it's not like it is today. <laughs> it's uh, uh, de- definitely changed, and it's it's one of those things because we've been around since '96. Tim, uh, Brian, and, and Lutz founded us, and I took over in 2001 when I was uh, just a couple of months short of 17. So I, I've been running the NLSC now for uh, longer than I haven't been running it, which is kind of mind blowing to me actually <laughs> that I'm still doing it, but I, I still have the passion for it. But it's it, it is it is one of those things, you know. You hear, hear a lot of developers say that and, and have that. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, with the trenches that that comic that uh, the guys from Penny Arcade were doing for a while there. Just all the stories you would hear from the industry that as that is as wonderful as it can be, it's as how terrible as can be as well. Yes, and they're absolutely right. It's it that's why it's so hard. You know, it's it's so hard to look back because on the one hand it was my dream job, but on the other hand it was a nightmare in a lot of ways and but at least it was my dream job for a while and you know and to be clear not everyone is like me you know like there are still people that I worked with at EA that are still making games and they still love it and you know bless them all but it was you know there's also a lot of people like me and they can't you know once you reach a certain point you just can't do it anymore and it's it's hard because I really miss making games and I would love to make games. But every time I think, okay, maybe I'd like to get back into making games again, I always end up saying, no, I just can't. I can't handle the the grind. It's just not for me. Would you would you do something like an indie project or uh, maybe not a triple A project? Because it seems the the triple A industry is where a lot of the, uh, the the biggest headaches are. Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're right. I think the AAA projects are, you know, because there's more on the line, because there's a larger budgets and much more at stake. Uh, so, you know, they're going to they're going to work you to death. But <clears throat> maybe an indie title, I don't know. It, you know, I might I might be willing to do something like that, but uh, it's just it's just hard because it's almost like PTSD in a way. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and I, I, mean, I know uh, that I'm probably over-dramatizing it, so I, I would like to issue this caveat that not everyone is like me, but 
there is a certain amount of PTSD that uh, a type of PTSD from uh, the the just losing an entire you know number of years of your life to this vortex and you know kind of coming out of it on the other side. So I I know what you mean. I, I can't relate to that as a programmer, but I did work uh, tech support for an internet company for a few years there many years ago, and uh, sometimes I still get a bit uh, jittery when a phone rings. So it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, and but I. To this day, I can tell you how to, set, how to set up email over a phone so uh, without seeing a computer. So I guess there's, these things never leave us. But um, yes, yes. I, I, I certainly can um, understand that. And it's it's a shame on one hand, but at the same time that you were able to get those years out of it and, and produce and, and be a part of these great titles at, at the height of a series popularity and success is, uh, is, is something to be proud of. And, and you know, obviously, you know, that you can look on back look back on that with uh, with some measure of pride and uh you know talking about that 12 year old picking up the the game and you know and thinking you know when you were that age and, and picking up games and and i guess maybe admiring the people or you know from afar i suppose of, of who who made those games that you grew up with and, and and i suppose to that end of you know since it's we've brought that up uh what were your favorite games uh, growing up well i was more of a uh, we've already established I wasn't a real big sports fan, so I was really big into Doom, mm -hmm. uh, first-person shooters, you know, Doom, Battlefield, Quake, uh, which is strange considering I really kind of sucked at all of them. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, I was really into those types of games uh, more than sports games for sure. And then uh, one other game, this, the the outlier, I guess, would be a game called Falcon 3.0. It was a uh, F-14 flight simulator that i would play with a friend uh we we lived next to each other in an apartment building and we would string a serial modem cable between his apartment and mine and play multiplayer falcon 3 uh, that was a great great experience so that was one of my favorite games at the time too uh but sorry no basketball games <laughs> oh that's that's fine no i just what i wondered if it was any uh, like sid Meier's pirates or civilization or uh, commander keen or any of the classics like that no, more first persons and and uh, flight sims for me. Of course, flight sims. You know, you, then, you, then you would have to use the uh, the Gravis game pads and joysticks naturally. Yes, yes, I always had lots of those sitting around. And uh, th I always remember Gravis because th there's a Gravis patch for NBA Live '95 PC for uh, compatibility, but also, of course, it was a collectible power up icon in uh, Jazz Jackrabbit, the classic uh, PC platformer. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, I did not know that. <clears throat> but, um, I'm a bit of a geek myself. Um, I just, <laughs> I like sports, but I'm also a bit of a nerd for these things. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but that, that, that is really cool. Uh, so are you still in, in programming and in, in IT or have you, have you moved on uh, completely? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just not in the games industry anymore. Yep. I, uh, uh, after leaving EA the last time, the third time, after being kicked out of EA <laughs> the third time, uh, I ended up uh, kind of on a on a somewhat parallel course uh, doing games for casino slot machines. Uh, so uh, the video slot machines that you see in Las Vegas and mm -hmm. uh, building game engines for that. And that was that was kind of cool. Uh, uh, not quite the same as making you know games for EA. Uh, but now I uh, currently am building artificial intelligence systems. Or a artificial intelligence startup. Also, if the if the robot uprising, we know who to blame, basically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, not not me. 
<laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> so, uh, you're programming them. It's you know the uh, Asmob's uh, law that they won't they won't come for you anyway. No, no. The, there's a cheat code in there. Uh, <laughs> you type in Bigfoot, and they'll leave you alone. So you can take that, put it away. When when the robots come, just remember the cheat code Bigfoot. Does it also pop up the uh, the classic picture of, of the, the Photoshop Chippendale dancer? Or? Uh, no, it doesn't, but you will have really large feet all of a sudden. <laughs> Fantastic. So, any other uh, funny stories you'd care to share? Um, you know, if, you know, we've got time, obviously, and thank you for being uh, so generous with yours, but if there's any other uh, shout-outs or amusing anecdotes you'd like to share, um, the floor is yours. Man, there are so many. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's one, I, I think one funny story. There's so many, there's literally, I have a whole database of funny stories. <laughs> a DBF just weird. File. Yes. I have a whole DBF file in my head of funny things that happen, but, uh, this one is pretty cool. I, I came into work one morning, we were crunching on, I think it was live 2000 and, uh, came into work one morning and our cubicles, we all had cubicles. This is before the whole open op office concept, which frankly sucks. Um, give me an officer cubicle any day. So our cubicles at the time when we were developing NBA, we had rows and rows of cubicles. So, you know, my cubicle was kind of in the middle of a roll, a row. And I came into work one morning, my cubicle was soaked with water from Every from corner to corner, there was a a layer of water on top of everything on my desk, and the the carpet was soaked, and no other cubes around me were targeted. It was just my cube. My cube was completely underwater, and I called facilities. This is in our, our the big huge EA facility in Burnaby in Vancouver, and I called facilities, and they came and they looked, and they were dumbfounded because it was crazy because no other cubicles that shared my walls were touched, not a single drop of water. And so we started kind of cleaning things up and facilities is standing there wondering what's going on. And then I kind of put some of the water on my finger and kind of feel it. And it's like, you know, this feels like salt water. And I tasted, I said, yeah, this is salt water. And there, and so I'm like, where in the heck would salt water come from? And then within five seconds of me saying that, the two people from facilities looked at each other and went, oh no, and they ran away very quickly. It turns out that Don Matrick, who was the uh, general manager and CEO of EA Canada at the time, uh, he had a very large saltwater fish tank in his office, oh, which no. happened to be <laughs> right directly above my cubicle. And there was a leak that happened in his fish tank and uh it dumped all of the water right directly on top of my cubicle on my monitors on my keyboard on my computer everything and only my cube so it was like <laughs> don matrick's uh aquarium had it out for me for some reason <laughs> and i don't know i don't know why but anyway i was able to go home act i was actually thankful because i was able to actually go home for a couple of days while they cleaned out my cube and kind of sucked up all the water so i actually kind of got a day off uh that you know was very uncommon at the time <laughs> it's a very strange occupational hazard salt water salt water fish tank in the uh developing one of the things you don't read about in a lot of uh, developers stories mm -hmm. 
And putting salt water on electronics is generally not a great idea. No, no. <laughs> like you say, you got got you some uh, some rare time off, so maybe uh, maybe we'll see some more fish tanks being uh, implemented in the in the industry. Maybe I don't know. We'll see. But uh, yes, yeah, so thank you so much for, for sharing these stories. And uh, yeah, again, it's really cool to to hear about the what went into our favorite games back in the day and. And yeah, I, I'm not at all disappointed to hear that so so much of it was serendipity. It's uh, I'm a big fan of that actually. The when things just come together like that and uh, and unplanned and that they can have so many uses, it's uh, it, it's great to see that creativity and and you know, the the long-reaching effect that it had. That it was still the DBF files were still being used until NBA Live 08 PC. And uh, yeah, so I mean, thank you for your contributions to the series and, and for talking to us today and, and sharing those stories and. Uh, and hopefully there's no fish tanks above your office. No, there are no fish tanks above my office. And uh, I just want to say thanks for, you know, allowing me to kind of walk down memory lane and and kind of remember all this stuff because, you know, it's uh, it's been a long time. But uh, I do have to say, you know, the, the thought that this, you know, just one small thing, which was saying, you know, hey, why don't we use a DBF file instead of, you know, instead of a code file, you know, it. It's it's really cool to know that um, you know there's such a there, that there was a community behind it and and that it allowed so many possibilities for that for that community and even if it was even if it was ser- serendipity and and kind of unintentional in that regard I'm so glad that it worked out the way it did and I just want to say thank you for sort of uh, you know keeping the the love for this game alive so thank you. You're welcome, and, and thank you. And of course, for everyone listening, make sure you never turn off the, the line animations in NBA Live 98. <laughs> That's right. Certainly some great stories there. Always great to get an insight into the early days of NBA Live, and thank you once again to Darren for joining me for that chat. We're hoping to line up some more interviews for the 25th anniversary content. We'll also have more retrospectives and other articles and fun things, so stay tuned for that. And of course, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled program with the NLSC podcast next week. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, I encourage you to subscribe to the show. You can find us on various podcatching apps, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Search for NLC Podcast, look for our logo, and that will be us. If you'd like to leave us a review on those platforms, we certainly appreciate that as well. It uh, it helps out with visibility as well as stroking our own ego, of course. Let's just know that we're doing a good job and, and putting in a show that you're enjoying listening to. You can also stream it on the NLC, of course, nba-live.com, where it comes out every week, every Sunday night, Australian Eastern Time. As long as you're tuning into the show and enjoying it each and every week, that is the main thing. I also invite you to connect with us on social media. On Twitter and Facebook, we are the NLSC. You can also find me on Twitter at Andrew NLSC. On Instagram, we are NLSC Basketball. On YouTube, we are NBA Live Series Center. And of course, keep it locked to the NLSC itself, nba-live.com, for everything we do for basketball video games. But yes, that is all for episode number 316 of the NLSC podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in. Until next time, I've been Andrew. Go get buckets, everyone.
So just a little bit of a bonus story with uh, with Darren here. Yeah, so uh, I, I alluded to it earlier. Um, so in ni- 1999, uh, the NBA, uh, there was a feature that I was working on, which was to put the scores at the bottom of the Jumbotron, and we were getting live scores from the NBA. And so it was, uh, uh, for whatever reason, I needed to talk and meet with the NBA, their tech team in New York, uh, to go over how this data was going to be exchanged. And so uh, the NBA sends us these VIP ticket packages, these are really thick ticket packages for the All-Star, All-Star weekend in New York. It was in Manhattan. And they sent us these ticket packages. One of them was for me. And then we had two executive producers come along on the trip. And so the three of us flew to New York, and we spent the entire week in New York uh, going to the uh, All-Star game, the dunk competition. And then uh, one of the nights, we walked from our hotel. We were staying in uh, a hotel in Manhattan, right in Times Square. This was all top-shelf, top, top-notch stuff all paid for by the company or the NBA. And we walked to the Apollo Theater. There was a uh, pregame party the, the night before, I think, the All-Star game. And so we went. it was at the Apollo Theater, and we had tickets because we had VIP packages from the NBA. So awesome. we walked from our hotel to the Apollo Theater, and we got there early. And so, you know, they hadn't really, like, we were super early, but, you know, we didn't want to walk back to our hotel and they, the door was open. So we went in and they didn't really have everything set up yet. So we just kind of went upstairs and sat by, you know, sat at this table and just kind of waiting for things to get going. And as time rolls on, we're starting to notice that we're being surrounded by a lot of celebrities. <laughs> and then after a few hours, we're, we're seeing, okay, this entire floor, because we were upstairs in the Apollo Theater, this entire floor is populated by celebrities. We are the only non-celebrity people up here. What <laughs> the heck is going on? So uh, it turns out that uh, the upstairs part was for VIP celebrities only, and we got there before whoever was supposed to be watching the Velvet Rope, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> we got there before anyone was there, and we just kind of wandered upstairs and sat down, and next thing you know, we're surrounded by, you know, all sorts of celebrities, celebrities at the time. They, these were not celebrities today, of course, but um, one of them was Jennifer Love Hewitt. She was a TV actress. And then uh, I remember distinctly there was one time myself and the two producers that were uh, with me, Will Moselle was one, and I can't remember who else was with us, but uh, all three of us were kind of standing there at this table and Tyra Banks is across the room and she turns and starts walking directly right towards me and both Will and the other guy, I'm trying to remember who it was, uh, Stan Chow maybe? Anyway, uh, they both turn to me and say, dude, Tyra Banks is coming over to talk to you. I'm like, what? And I turn, I look and she's walking straight for me and I'm like, oh God, what am I going to (laughs) do? And she gets about five feet away from me and walks right by me and sits on the sofa that's right next to our table. <laughs> and so it was like a real big letdown, and she starts talking on her cell phone or whatever. And so it was like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, here I thought Tyra Banks was going to come over and talk to me, and no, it ended up not being that. Uh, <laughs> but that, as I men- mentioned earlier, that was the first time I met a uh, basketball player. And unfortunately... 
the basketball player I met was somewhat of a notorious one. And again, remember, I'm not a basketball guy, so you're going to have to help me. Mm -hmm. This was a guy who was on the New York Nets who went to jail because he murdered someone. Oh, Jason Williams. That guy. Yes, that guy. We met him. (laughs) And that that was about the only basketball player I've ever met. (laughs) So... So, you know, there that, was the good and the bad. Yeah, that's, that's certainly a, a very infamous meeting um, of, uh, of, yeah, the, of then the New Jersey Nets, uh, Jason Williams, uh, uh, terrible incident where he was showing off some guns and one went off uh, accidentally and killed a chauffeur. It's, uh, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah was, that's uh, that. hell, hell of a play to meet, yes. Um, it reminds me of my experiences actually uh, going there for the NBA Live 08 uh, community event. Live uh, it was 2007. They took us to the draft, uh, talking about this off-air. We, uh, they put us up in the nice hotel where the the draftees were staying. Saw Greg Oden get in the, in the lift, and I'm six three, six three and a half, and think I'm you know fairly tall for my average. Get in there, he's seven foot standing next to me, and felt never felt smaller in my whole entire adult life. But um, they they actually took us to the draft. We got to see the draft. EA paid for that, and that was really cool. And they uh, we rolled up in this big black limo. And, like, of course, it's Madison Square Garden. So everyone's, like, looking, oh, who's that, who's that? And then a bunch of geeky gamers get out and, like, oh, that's no one. And it's, uh, <laughs> you've, you've never seen such disappointment on people's faces that that, that wasn't anybody of significance. So. Well, yeah, it probably matches the disappointment on my face when I figured out that Tyra Banks wasn't coming to talk to me. <laughs> and, well, you know, the best part of that trip was I spent with these two producers that were with me. We were in uh, downtown, uh, you know, uh, Manhattan, Times Square, staying at, like right in a Times Square in a hotel, top shelf rooms, top shelf food. We were there for a total of seven days. And the only reason I was on that trip was because I had to meet with the NBA to discuss the data format for this feature. And it turns out that the meeting for that happened on the final day, about two hours before we needed to go to our flight Oof. to get to our flight home. So I was able to spend an entire week in New York enjoying the fruits of the NBA, uh, you know, NBA experience for the, the, the all-star game and the dunk competition and all that stuff for a 30-minute meeting with the NBA on the final day. Mm. So that, that was pretty awesome, I have to say. That, that makes up for the pranks, I would have to, have to imagine. Almost, yes. Almost. Almost. <laughs> you know, the I've, I've also been pranked by developers that just came to mind at, at that, I think it was that event or maybe another one, where we're in the hotel, and we're at the bar, and uh, there with, with Marcus, the community manager, and a couple of the developers, and, uh, you know, having a good time. We've been been drinking a fair bit, and then by the uh, by the end of the night, we're like, okay, this is, it's time, and then a couple of the developers show up with uh, with, with tequila shots, like, all right, you guys, <laughs> you're doing shots now. Oh, great. And uh, that's the last I remember of that particular evening, actually. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, us developers are a tricky bunch. <laughs> that's right. 